Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. doesn't matter the size of the house that's built. Builders are passionate about what they do. Zach Giffen demonstrates that in this conversation about tiny homes. In 2018, I happened to be at the code hearing when Appendix Q for tiny homes was adopted for the International Residential Code. This year, I was asked by the state of Colorado to represent the Energy Code on a working group trying to figure out how to regulate the construction of tiny homes. It turns out that if they are built on a foundation, things seem to go fine. But when they're built on wheels, there are issues that regulators and advocates must work out. Deciding if they are mobile homes or modular homes is a big issue. But in my world, the question is if they must abide by the International Energy Conservation Code. Some analysis has shown that they can easily meet the 2018 IECC using the area-weighted U-value compliance alternative and the ResCheck software. But now, with the 2021 IECC, trade-offs are not as easy, and the insulation requirements would make the structure too tall to be on wheels. In Zach's world, regulating energy use in a tiny home does not make sense due to its size. I found it interesting that the fundamental question came down to first cost, which is the same argument that the NAHB uses when pushing back against energy code. Regardless, ultimately the best thing about my conversation with Zach was that we did not agree on everything, but we were willing to hear each other's views. So I hope you enjoy your listen of the BuildCast. Hi, this is Robbie with the BuildCast and I'm here with Zach Griffin. Uh, Zach is a carpenter and co-host of the TV show, Tiny House Nation. He is a board member of the national nonprofit, Operation Tiny Home and vice president of the Tiny House Industry Association. Zach's going to talk to us all about tiny houses today. So how are you, Zach? And welcome to the BuildCast. Hey, thanks. Thank you. I'm very good. And it's a lovely, warm, sunny day down here in Bellingham, Washington. And up in the mountains is just a blanket of new snow. So life's pretty good. Yeah. Are you a skier? I am. Yes. It's uh, It's been a lifelong fanatical op- occupation for me. So it's, um, yeah, just something... That's brought me a lot of joy and uh, ironically has also kind of led me down the path of becoming a home builder and a carpenter um, because, you know, when I was kind of in the in the process of figuring out what I'm going to do for a living, I was needing an yeah. occupation that gave me some time off in the wintertime. Yeah. So, <laughs> carpentry. Actually, they they actually have a little bit of a joke where ski bumming is a gateway drug to carpentry. Yeah. And it definitely was true for me. Yeah. That's interesting. That's that's really interesting. Um, I often say, speaking of gateway drugs, that building science is the, uh, or the energy code, I guess, is the gateway drug into building science and, and all things uh, buildings there. So I could see that um, being true. Yeah. Um, so we're just pushing out of this hugely cold time period that we're having here in, in the Denver area, uh, been negative, uh, 
below zero weather for the last couple of days and moving into warm weather here. Um, so I, I was kind of interested in in your discussion of of you know what's going on in Bellingham and ultimately how how did you get to Bellingham and construction? Uh, it sounds like skiing was was the impetus, but uh, what ultimately led you to tiny houses uh, mm -hmm. from construction? And were you building uh, single family homes and other types of construction before? Yeah, um, good question. I you know I moved to Washington. When I was 23, and by that point, I had already been working as, um, you know, a carpenter doing framing in in Boulder, Colorado, for a number of years. And then when I moved to Washington, I was really only living here in the wintertime, so it was kind of seasonal. And then I was going back to Colorado to frame homes, and you know, I, I worked for a good friend of mine, and we did kind of full renovations, so it was remodels instead of new construction. Mm -hmm. which was fun, you know, because we got to do the whole process from the demo and then reframing the structure and then finishing it all the way through to the kind of final trim. So it was good learning. Uh, didn't get yeah. too boring. Um, got got to be a part of a lot of really cool houses. Great. Um, maybe you can define for me what a tiny house is. Uh, is there a standard definition? There's not. And it's something that, you know, as vice president of the Tiny Home Industry Association, that is essentially our number one goal is to kind of get some universal building codes for tiny homes, because without having kind of a real definition, it's impossible for places that want to open up zoning for this housing type to be able to say yes to it because it's too much of a gray area. You know, they don't really know what they're talking about. And on the same, you know, in the same token, it's also really difficult for banks to quantify the value of them and insurance companies to quantify the value of them. So, you know, before all of the rest of what needs to fall in line to make tiny homes a real option, building codes is number one. And so that's been uh, a process that's been ongoing. Um, and most recently, uh, it's been a little bit sidetracked because of an, an initiative by the ICC who is essentially going to be incorporating not just small structures, um, tiny homes on permanent foundations, but also tiny homes on non-permanent foundations. So that okay. could be, you know, any kind of structure that's not going to be permanently affixed to the ground. So it could be on a trailer, it could be on um, a chassis with skids. Um, but that's been a really big development. And it may be that we don't need to actually create our own Kind of definition and building codes because the ICC very well could just absorb it into their broader broader body of the code. That's great. I, I'm uh, frantically searching here um, in the IRC right now as we're speaking because uh, I'm surprised that there isn't a definition in the IECC or the IRC, uh, International Residential Code, yeah. uh, but well, there is this new appendix, um, Appendix so, yeah. Yeah, let me give you the history on Appendix AQ. It was first called Appendix Q, and yeah. it was actually myself and a, a collection of other kind of tiny home advocates in 2016 that went to the um, the ICC meeting in Kansas City and kind of proposed an 
amendment to the codes for structures that were under 400 square feet or less or okay. 400 square feet or less. And so essentially that got known as the tiny house appendix and it was appendix Q. So essentially when you ask the question of what is a tiny home by definition of the IRC, it's any fully functioning residential structure that is got a floor print or a footprint of 400 square feet or less. And okay. so that actually has kind of turned into an official definition of what a tiny home is. However, if you're part of the movement, you'll recognize that, you know, tiny homes, a lot of them are built on trailers with wheels, right? Yeah. And only actually a very small percentage of the tiny homes that are really getting built. And I would argue a very small percentage of the actual movement are tiny homes on foundations. And the vast majority of the interest in this type of structure are the ones that are non-permanent. And so that's, you know, where we've been kind of as an industry and a movement is like, once we got Appendix Q into the IRC, it's all it's all about advocating the different states to actually adopt that appendix into their into their code because the different states they don't adopt um, the recommendations all at once, and some states are still on 2015, and so those states they they don't actually recognize Appendix Q. There's other states that have adopted new, the newer codes, the 2018 codes, but chose not to include Appendix Q. Um, and so that would be an example would be like Pennsylvania has done that. And then now in the newer, um, 2021 codes, the guidelines, they have changed it. So now it's appendix AQ and the difference is that they've basically absorbed it into, um, well, AQ has got some modifications to it, right? Yeah. And, 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 AQ... uh, and go ahead. I was just going to say that the the next step in the process is in the 2024 they plan on dissolving it as an appendix and just write the same language into the broader body of the code oh really okay and that's actually a good thing because what it does is it essentially makes it harder for a place like pennsylvania to say okay we're going to adopt the new codes but we don't want that part yeah 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 and and appendixes as as um, physical written code are optional anyway. You know, they yeah. don't even have to be amend, they don't have to be adopted or amended. They just can be ignored unless uh, the jurisdiction wants to. So that's probably good uh, uh, for the tiny house uh, groups. Well, what's it, not really uh, talked about a whole lot is that all of the guidelines that come out of the ICC or the IRC are completely optional, right? Well, yeah. They're, they're simply guidance. So having an appendix onto the other code guidelines makes it easier for people to opt out. But the truth is, is that they could opt out of the guidelines, even if it was baked into the code, because they can essentially have, have leeway to kind of pick and choose what they like and what they don't like. Yeah, that's a great point, uh, because codes are not adopted well. Uh, they're amended really haphazardly, and that leads, I think, often to uh, poor enforcement. Uh, and I, you know, ultimately, I think the the codes, well, from my perspective, especially the energy code, uh, is is doing some really good things. And if it is adopted and enforced as it's uh, written in the in the actual language of the book, 
uh, it could uh, be making a big difference in the in the energy performance and durability performance and sustainability performance uh, throughout there. So yeah. I, I've got the the tiny home appendix here, and I'm just going to read uh, the user note, which is uh, a note that is in front of each section that I I really haven't read all the time uh, here, but it, it kind of does give us this definition. It says about this appendix, the appendix AQ relaxes various requirements in the body of the code as they apply to houses that are 400 square feet uh, in area or less. Attention is specifically paid to features such as compact stairs, including stair handrails and headroom, ladders, reduced ceiling heights, and in loss and guard and guard and emergency escape and rescue opening requirements at lofts. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it, it kind of makes sense that it's in the international residential code because it's really more about life safety issues associated with uh, tiny homes, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, well, Appendix Q was essentially introduced simply to allow builders to actually build smaller homes and make it work and be able to incorporate some of the things that do make it work like sleeping lofts for people, right? So before Appendix Q, it really wasn't possible to build a home with a small footprint and actually comply with the with the residential code. And so this was essentially just um, granting small structures some exemptions that didn't really make sense for small structures and and also were really like prohibitive for people to actually to build with them and so they relaxed some of the um the the square footage area requirements for a living area and then a sleeping area um as well as the sleeping loft is a big one because before you know you could build essentially a tiny home and have a loft but you had to call it a storage loft even though people fully like, intended on sleeping there all the time. And so it, it kind of comes back to what you were saying about enforcement, right? Is like the codes, they're, they're, they will do their job if they're enforced. However, if you have a situation where the codes are requiring things that are just don't make sense, and then even the building enforcing officials think that they're completely out of line and out of touch, well, you're going to end up with an enforcement issue, and that's exactly what we have here in Washington State when it comes to tiny homes and tiny homes on wheels, is that there is some laws that have, were written essentially without people that were thinking through the ramifications of the laws that were essentially saying, yeah, you can build a tiny home, whether it's on a foundation or on wheels, doesn't matter as long as you comply with the Washington State Building Codes, including the, the energy portions of that. And so the people that write that, they think it's a, that's a great idea. However, when you actually try to take that into practice, you come into this realization that there's this thing called the rules of the road and the constraints of a structure that you're gonna be towing down a road. And yeah. when you try to comply with the rules of the road, and then you also try to build a home that's built to the IRC standards, that also um, complies with all their requirements for head heights underneath lofts, for head clearances above staircases, as well as for the uh, loft head height, 
what you come to realize is that you're dealing with very, very small margins in order to be even able to comply with everything. So it was a law that was great in terms of the intention, but it wasn't really thought out in terms of the actual effect. And the result has been that now here in Washington, in Whatcom County, where I live, I can tell you of at least 10 tiny homes that are being built right now. And I can tell you 10 more that have been built and lived in. And they're completely illegal, but the county is just absolutely has no incentive to basically take somebody who is housed and then impose this enforcement on these based on, upon these rules that they don't necessarily agree with and then take somebody and cause another now you have another person out on the street right yeah. and so it's this weird it's 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 fine like everybody's doing it they're getting away with it but it's not the same thing as actual having the right to do so legally Okay, so that's um, a big impetus to uh, get some definition in code. Uh, that exactly. It, okay, um, it makes sense to me, I guess, that the definition or the parameters that are outlined in this appendix um, for a home that's 400 square feet or less on a foundation mm -hmm. um, there, and so. If it's not on a foundation, if it's mobile, why would it not go under the guise of like a mobile home or or uh, an RV or something like that rather than mm -hmm. an IRC uh, type code? Well, because other than HUD housing, right, which is essentially manufactured housing, uh, those other types of structures of codes, they're not actually built to be used as full-time habitable structures. So the um, even like a park model code, which is an ANSI 11.9.5 is the code that you build a park model to. Well, there's still right there What's in... What's a park model? Okay, a park model RV, okay. essentially. So tiny homes right now, no matter how well you build them, no matter how well they're insulated, in most places, they're considered RVs. They're, cons they're, they're built to the park model standard. And it's just not allowed as a house, right? So people are building them. They're selling them to people that are absolutely fully intending on living in them. But right there within the stamp that they get, it's saying this is for seasonal occupation only. And, and so... Um, Getting around that has been the biggest goal of, you know, everybody within this movement. Um, and there's two ways that people do that. So so let me let me go back a little bit further. If you're going to build a tiny home, which is a, a house under 400 square feet, and it's going to be on a permanent foundation, then you would go and you build it to the IRC. And you use Appendix Q and you, you know, submit your plans, do it no differently than any other residential structure. If you are going to build to HUD code, that's a whole nother can of worms. And it's really very difficult as a small time builder to actually construct to HUD code because there's a whole lot of other requirements in terms of the inspection of your facility, the amount of homes that you have to produce every year. And it's really just designed for big business, right? And that's why you have manufactured housing done the way it's done. And then after that, there's offsite modular 
right? Which is essentially you would be building in a factory, but it would be intended on going to a location and getting set on a permanent foundation. That also you're building to the IRC codes. Now you're the the next level down is the RV codes, and it, and you have something called NFPA, and that's 1192, and that is the code that um, essentially tra- uh, RVs are built to, like travel trailers. Mm-hmm. And the thing to understand about that is that there is zero insulation requirements at all what found in 1192, and the same code body that governs, you know really nice RVs is the same one that also governs pop-up trailers. So you can't really as a city just say, okay, we're going to allow 1192 as a, as something you can live in because there's no delineation. They, you know, it, they're baseline codes. So there's a lot of structures that are built in excess to that. And then you have the park model RV and the park model RV is um, one step above the standard RV code. And that is ANSI 11.9.5. And essentially, it still has requirements that are just substantially lower standards than residential construction. So the insulation requirements and on the ANSI 11.9.5 is like an R5, for instance. And mm-hmm. so there's very few places that are going to allow houses nowadays to, regardless of the size, to only have an R5. Um, yeah. And and like I said before, there's those are just base requirements, so there's nothing stopping you from building it far in excess of that. Yeah. But just because you do build in far in excess doesn't mean that you now get qualified for full-time living. Okay. So if you were to um, buy a park-ready mobile home, or I guess RV, well, you got to be careful with the with careful with the names there right because when you say mobile home it almost implies manufactured housing okay right so and that's built the hud code and then rvs are their own code so it's a park ready rv yep park model rv yeah uh which does that mean that you can park it in a mobile home park or what does the park part of it mean well it's still an rv in terms of the way it's treated by law. And so a mobile home park typically only allows HUD housing. Okay. An RV park and a a mobile home park are two different things because of the type of structure that they allow in that space. So essentially, yeah, with with a park model, you're pretty much restricted to RV parks or mobile home parks that have changed their bylaws and now allow for, you know, tiny houses, which a lot of places are. Okay. So in theory, you could live year round in that mobile vehicle. You can, in a lot of places, uh, RV parks, some RV parks are grandfathered in, in terms of not necessarily requiring, um, they, they allow for year round living in their RV park. Typically RV parks, no, they are, they're only for seasonal, um, occupation and so uh that's another place where the enforcement is just really relaxed and so there's all sorts of rv parks around the country where people are living in rvs all year long in that space and it's never a problem unless somebody complains right 
and that's how people are getting away with all over the place. And and I think that that's fine. I mean, in my community in, in Glacier, Washington, there's an RV park and people are living in the RV park in school buses and some tiny houses and RVs and a whole range of different types. But it is the only place in our community that actually has like any kind of vibrance within like cultural vibrance because the rest of our our town is just made a ghost town you know airbnbs and second homes make up uh i think we're down to 12 percent full-time occupancy within our within our house and if we didn't have that rv park we wouldn't be able to have a restaurant because there wouldn't be anybody to work at it you know we wouldn't be able to have a coffee shop like our entire workforce lives in the rv park and the entire thing's illegal and is I probably, it, you know, nobody in Washington State is going to listen to this and then yeah. go up to the RV park. And you better not, because then we're going to lose all our, you know, all the workforce of an entire town. Is your town a resort community or a destination? It is. Yeah, it, we're, we're close to Mount Baker Ski Area. Um, but that's another example of Mount Baker Ski Area is, you know, they used to be able to tap into kind of the local community for their workforce. And now... The housing scenario is just to the point where there simply isn't enough people around. So they're running shuttle buses from Bellingham simply yeah. just to get employees. Yeah. Employee housing is a big issue in the mountain communities here in Colorado as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they seem to be addressing it by building apartments and multifamily type uh, structures rather than tiny houses. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm not a. I'm I'm a tiny home advocate because I see a whole lot of opportunities that tiny homes can provide to society for solutions of a wide range. But um, I'm not anti-apartment, right? Yeah. I, I I believe that an apartment building is a tool to address a need that works in certain places. And there's a lot of places. There's a lot of more rural communities like where I live, where an apartment building wouldn't actually be the appropriate solution. Um, because it would be number one, it would be out of place um, because there's no other big apartment buildings in a little town like that. Um, but number two is that there's not necessarily the the concentrated demand for housing that would actually make an apartment building be desirable. Um, and and also there's a culture, there's a more rural culture that just people would rather have, you know, a smaller home and then have a yard and have some outside space and have, you know, some privacy than essentially just the, the, the apartment. So that being said, I think that there's too much kind of conflict, I think, between um, uh, progressive forces that are like interested in housing solutions. Too many people are kind of focused on their one solution as like, this is going to be the saving grace. Mm -hmm. And the truth of the matter is like, when it comes to not just solutions for housing, but also solutions for, you know, you know, social equity as well as environmental energy reduction measures. Um, we need like all hands on deck. So we need all the solutions that we can get. Um, yeah. And we got to yeah. start moving on all of them pretty quick. Um, yeah, so I wanted to kind of go backwards one step and try to understand better the benefit of having a tiny house on wheels versus uh, on a foundation. Because um, oh, that, that seems where the, the big, 
the big jump is there's no real issue about putting it on a foundation but why why do you why do people want them to be mobile well that's a beautiful question and you're you're really hitting the nail right on the head is that yeah the resistance to tiny homes i think we've kind of won when it comes to tiny homes on foundations right it's totally legal there's nothing stopping anybody but the reason that the that the movable tiny homes are absolutely the next you know the thing that needs to be talked about is because of flexibility you know the desirability of having a home on a non-permanent foundation is all about the flexibility of how that home can be used and what it really comes down to is there's a lot of people that aren't completely settled that would love to be able to own a little little home and they don't need a whole lot their life might be outside their house a lot right so it's essentially they want to be able to own something that can't be taken away from them and also provides the opportunity to kind of allow them to take up opportunities in other places and potentially move their home with them so you know people aren't moving tiny homes every week like an rv that's not the point the point is to be able to have something that works for your life right now and then be able to take up an opportunity somewhere else and potentially bring your home with you so you don't become so uprooted um so anyway so that's that's one but here's my take on what is significant about mobility that people don't actually recognize nearly as much and there's a lot of different ways that you can utilize a tiny home right you can put them into pocket communities you know it could be in kind of like a, a trailer park setting um it could be off on property in a remote location where it's hard to get um utilities because they lend themselves to being off grid but i think personally the where i see it impacting society the very most is being used as accessory dwelling units in the backyard of existing single family properties and i don't have to tell you about the popularity of adus accessory dwelling units um in zoning be, because basically everywhere every major state has got their own version of some kind of adu law coming down the pipes yeah. because it's considered by planners as the most gentle form of urban upzoning right because instead of just allowing apartment buildings to come in you know you're basically spreading it out right there's a better there's a more of a disbursement of um more affordable housing options that are created that aren't concentrated in the same way and so people like to point out that it doesn't kind of disrupt the character of the community um and and the result is that you're getting a lot of places to open up to ADUs where they're not about to open up to apartment buildings right away. So it's a little bit of like a spear tip against the NIMBYism. Um, and, you know, more conservative libertarian people like it because it's kind of allowing property owners more autonomy and less regulation, you know, like get the government out of my nose and allow me to do what I want with my property. And then it really appeals to, you know, more liberal people who are interested in, in increasing density, um, producing more affordable housing, um, creating more energy efficient, you know, cities. 
And so it's kind of a win around, win all around. But the problem is, is when you actually follow it statistically and you look at the places that have opened up to ADUs, you find that it takes a really, really long time for any of those changes to actually impact affordability within that space. And the reason to me is really pretty apparent. And it's because if you are the type of person that can afford your mortgage, right? You already own a home and now you got extra cash that you can build a, an accessory dwelling unit in your backyard, or even if you're going to refinance your home and create that enough money, right? You can build that accessory dwelling unit, but the way that the way that prices are, it's really the people that can afford to go through with it. They lack that incentive, that financial incentive to then put it as a rental property. And so the vast majority of accessory dwelling units that get built are being built for um, a family member or as just a guest house or maybe in a vacation rental in places that allow it. Um, but the truth is, is very, very small percentage of those structures actually end up on the rental market. And the ones that do end up getting, you know, rented for top dollar. So they're not like falling into the category of making anything more affordable. It's really turns into a law that is extremely beneficial for already affluent property owners or developers that are then trying to maximize the value of the property that they're investing in. Um, it, and so, it, sorry, well, go I was ahead. I was talking say, a long time. It really seems like um, ADUs and tiny houses um, cannot be conflated into kind of the same conversation to me because um, uh, ADUs are within in the urban environment and they, the, the infrastructure isn't, um, besides the size of an ADU being similar to the size potentially of a tiny house, the infrastructure to be able to support an ADU and a tiny house, especially a tiny house on wheels, uh, is completely different. I mean, I can't park a tiny house in my backyard and hook up to my septic system and my gas and my electric. Uh, I need to put that tiny house on a foundation and create an ADU. Uh, well, basically. see, this is this is actually where I will disagree with you and basically completely. I completely disagree with that statement because when you're talking about an ADU that's on a foundation, in my mind, it's just a, it's a tiny house, right? Yeah, it's a fully functioning old thing. And but here, I'm gonna I'm gonna connect it for you, right? You have to run utilities from the existing structure, right, to the foundation of where you're going to put that accessory dwelling unit, right? You're gonna have to dig a trench, you're gonna have to run your septic connections, you're gonna have to run uh, power, um, and you're gonna have to extend that to a foundation, right? So when you're talking about the places that have opened up to tiny homes on movable tiny homes to be used as accessory dwelling unit, it's no different. There, do, there is always a requirement for a pad, even if that's just crushed gravel. Um, and the, the homeowner essentially has to dig and extend the utilities to that pad no differently, right? And then the tiny house, actually, when it gets set there, there are some requirements in terms of a foundation. It does go onto a foundation. It just doesn't go onto a permanent foundation. And so what what you're essentially doing is you're you're 
the property owner is going to run utilities to the pad. The owner of the tiny home is going to essentially place it on the pad and then hook up using standard hookups that have been developed through the HUD process, right? Because when a when a HUD home gets put onto a foundation, it's essentially the same thing. It's a whole, their foundation is a combination of pier blocks um, that hold that hold the structure up as well as tie downs. So like turnbuckles or or a ratchet, some kind of, and then there's also like, you know, helial, helial um, screws. So there's like these things called ground screws that really will help you like attach it down. So these are all processes that have already been de developed and declared safe and healthy um, and can be found in the HUD code. Um, so yeah, I guess that's that's my space is that, yeah, there's nothing stopping and there's no health and safety issues because we already allow it all over the country in, in other circumstances. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm picturing my house here in uh, just outside of downtown Denver in one of the older communities. Um, lots of auxiliary dwelling units are being built. Uh, generally, the living space is being built over a garage. Uh, but uh besides the you know the fact that roughly they're they you know potentially they're the same size as a tiny house um i can't see the city of denver allowing a mobile tiny house uh into a community like this versus where i could see them do it if they designated some land as a As, as a tiny park. house community or trailer as park a, or, or yeah. mobile home community, because the I, I'm I'm thinking that the city, the traditional, um, the NIMBYs value uh, value the people that place value on property uh, are going to um, view it as devaluating the the value of their homes and surrounding homes uh, by having something that's mobile uh, in your backyard that people are living in full time. Well, I don't blame you for having that conclusion. And I think that is essentially the conclusion that people have been operating that has allowed them to kind of discount this opportunity to address our housing needs. It's staring people right in the face. Um, but I will say that that notion has been challenged and is being challenged in a lot of the biggest cities in our country. So just to give you an awareness, the very first city that opened up to exactly what you think that Denver will never do was Fresno. And then the next city was Los Angeles. And then the next city was San Diego and San Jose, uh, Luis Obispo, Santa Cruz, Oakland, Humboldt County, um, Sacramento's currently considering it. So essentially, yeah, I think it's kind of a radical proposal of an idea, but it's actually getting through to people because they're recognizing how powerful it can be, not just for us as, you know, to provide housing that's needed, but also just to address some of the other challenges that we're dealing with, which is energy conservation right and it's also homelessness it's not just affordability but also creating 
um, empowering society with better safety nets for people and, and better ways for friends and family to support loved ones who are falling on hard times, you know, and a really good example of the difference between a tiny home is if you have, you know, a younger brother who's having a hard time, maybe they're a veteran and you find them that they're actually sleeping on the street or they're in a shelter, right? And you want to actually do something for that person. Our, our laws currently make it very difficult for uh, people to be support structures for one another. So allowing tiny homes on wheels means that instead of necessarily inviting my brother to come out of the shelter and then sleep on my couch until he's back up on his feet and he can afford his apartment, which is a scenario that is just intrinsically imp impeding on my life, and there's only so long that my wife is going to tolerate it, right? Well, if he can move into a backyard, into my backyard in a tiny home, well, there's a lot of support that I can lend there, right? And it's a yeah. great opportunity that in, empowers people to actually be able to help each other. And so, yeah, the the I'll, I'll just go because I didn't get to it before, and it's the number one factor that makes that changes the dynamic of ADUs when you allow them to be movable. And what it really comes down to is that when you allow a home to be movable, it means that the upfront cost of producing that ADU doesn't necessarily fall onto the shoulders of the existing property owner. And so currently there's a huge amount of people in places where they're passing ADU laws that are maybe on a fixed income, or less affluent that would love to rent out their backyard, right? And they would, and that kind of additional income would mean a huge amount in their lives, but they can't afford to go through with the addition, with that upfront expense of actually constructing the entire house. And what allowing it to be movable means is that myself, the owner of a, of a tiny home, could essentially partner with a property owner and for maybe five to ten thousand dollars you dig a pit and you run you run the utilities and now that's their entire investment they can rent out their backyard to me and now they can start actually enjoying um some kind of economic benefit from having those adu laws right whereas right now adu laws are this amazing thing as i said if you are an already affluent property owner that's looking to further leverage the value of your property or if you are a property investor that wants to like take a rental and now you can throw a ADU in the backyard and you know you, now you double your rental, um, and it changes it into a solution that's actually attainable for the people who need it most, and and it essentially is a much more equitable way to introduce ADU um, laws into into a city. Yeah. So it kind of well, it's. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting concept. I I believe that we we can feasibly call an ADU a tiny home. Uh, and, we can definitely call an ADU a tiny home. Yep. Uh, and you know the the big distinction is you know if it's on a foundation or or not if it's mobile or not. Uh, Denver, as an example, right now uh, has allowed some tiny home communities uh, mm -hmm. specifically to 
service uh, lower income or transitional housing, uh, but it you know adds a long-term housing resource. Mm -hmm. um, but they have not yet allowed me, for example, to put a, a movable tiny home pad or foundation slab with hookups and whatnot uh, in in my backyard. Um, mm -hmm. So, but although I could build a fixed tiny house, a tiny house on a foundation uh, as an yeah. ADU. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses um, or not. Um, well, I, I, wanted I to... do know in, in Colorado, you know, you are in the process of writing um, basically standards for tiny homes that are going to be adopted. And, and the focus is definitely on the movable tiny homes. Um, yes. And so once yes, that it's happens... Not, it's not... The, the difference there in, in what's being written is not, I think the, the main difference is, is it's a, they're not addressing zoning. No. Uh, and, and when you get, I think that's the key, when you get to these movable homes, uh, you have to change the zoning. Uh, well, you have to separate the two. You can't do them both at the same time right because there's different mechanisms um the building codes are written you know to ensure the health safety and efficiency of our structures right yeah. zoning is done on a local level typically um and is essentially just deciding what type of community do we want right do we want a well it's also talking about the density in the, the whole one of the big struggles about allowing adus uh, into uh, these resident existing residential communities is that you're uh, you're changing the zoning uh, pretty dr dramatically and you're changing the density of the communities and all those yeah, things. That's, so yeah, that's why zoning is about what kind of community do we want. Yes. Right. Yeah. It it really is. It's not. It's not. It's it's not about like oh these structures are safe. That's not That's not safe. Right. Because that work is supposedly being done already in the building code world, yeah. right? So the zoning doesn't have to like think about that. Like if it's an option, it means it's already been vetted for safety and health and, and efficiency. Um, and so I think that the, that's, that's something that I've ran into here in Washington is that people are like, well, okay, but like if you do this, then you still have to do the zoning. And it's like, yeah, but those are two different steps. And first you have to get the building codes dialed and make it so that the the structure is actually permitted for you know actually to be used as a home yeah and then once you have that model and it's actually allowed then the cities and the localities can can zone for it but until yeah. you have a product that's that's actually legal then um the zoning yeah. is so it seems like high. half the battle has been achieved and that's the battle of of the size uh, and if it's yes. on a foundation, there's no, there's real no issue at this point. Yes. Um, the problem that I think uh, Colorado right now is having with regards to the mo mobility of tiny homes is that you have to plan, you can't plan for one scenario that somebody's going to buy a tiny house, drive it off the lot, and park it somewhere forever. 
-hmm. it it has the potential of moving whenever it it moves uh so so you do it it does change the characteristic of of how it fits into the building code and the only way right now it fits into the building code is with manufactured housing or or mobile home type uh uh housing yeah and, and keep in mind i mean there, it's very difficult to build under 400 square feet and comply with hud code yeah right and so the manufactured homes that you see they're not coming out as tiny homes they're coming out as you know as as mobile homes the way that that we're used to seeing them no, and, and part and of that is because i think they're using it as a starting point really um and trying to adapt adapt it to uh the tiny house realm yeah, i would and that i would love it my my first choice is that hud would just write changes within their building codes to basically create a new category under the hud umbrella that is for tiny homes on wheels i think that that makes perfect sense and then all of a sudden tiny homes would be there wouldn't be any question about whether they're safe it would the only question would be zoning it would be do we want them here um yeah yeah well um that i think that kind of leads us into maybe uh, another aspect of tiny homes and and uh something that we had talked about briefly before which is kind of tiny homes and energy efficiency and mm -hmm. part of what colorado is struggling struggling with right now is how to incorporate tiny homes into the energy code not just the structural and other parts of the international residential code and so i was wondering your thoughts on uh, energy efficiency and uh, tiny homes and how it relates to the international energy conservation code all right well thank you i, I think um, the way that I see tiny homes in terms of their relation to the energy code is that currently the energy code is written in a way where the intention is just to ensure that all structures, habitable structures, are up to a certain, um, have, have a thermal envelope of a certain um, quality, essentially. And, and so that is the focus, is making sure that all homes are um, the walls, the, the the energy rating is up to a certain standard, right? And they don't include any kind of thought about what the actual size of the space and how many people are going to be living in there, right? And with a tiny home, it's so much smaller than the average home, the average size American home. And typically there's one or two people living in a tiny home and the reality is nowadays typically there's one or two people living in the average american size home 70 percent of the homes in the united states are occupied by two people or less and so what that tells me is that the conversation also needs to include some sort of consideration about the per capita energy use of a home and not just ensuring that every structure all the wall structures are equal because the truth of the matter is that a tiny home because it's so much smaller it's just a fraction of the size of the average home it is also using just a fraction of the energy um, and you can have a scenario where uh, 
one person's home that's like say an average of 2,000 square feet has incredibly thick dialed in thermal envelope, right? A very modern construction and triple pane windows, right? And then you can put that up against a tiny home that has maybe an R15 in the walls and an R21 in the ceilings, which is about typical for a tiny home. And the per capita use of energy is still dramatically less in the tiny home, even though their thermal envelope is not as thick. And so that really raises the question, okay, if the goal is efficiency, and what we're trying to do as a society is help us reduce our energy demand, um, and we do that through two different ways. We do that through changing to more efficient energy sources like heat pumps um, versus, you know, furnaces. And we also do it through having uh, better thermal envelopes. Well, there's a third factor that's not being considered, and that's the size. And so that's what I am very passionate as an advocate of tiny homes is really the next big kind of battle that we need to kind of fight on um, because we, we seem to be moved. We, we already won the battle when it comes to just allowing us to build smaller homes. And I feel like we're move, we're winning the battle, especially in, in terms of the ICC and the movement that's been happening there with allowing homes to be built on non-permanent foundations. And so then the next battle, what I see is, is just making sure that the energy requirements that really do impose a whole lot of cost on the construction process and therefore the owners of that space, the energy requirements are really Im impactful. Um, but making sure that the energy requirements are in line with not just increasing the energy efficiency of our homes, but also in general, creating more efficient society and more efficient housing per capita. Uh, that's going to be a, a potentially a, a bigger challenge. But, you know, I think that right now we're in a scenario where I think we could win those conversations really easily if we had really dialed in peer-reviewed studies, because that's what everybody wants to once when I start talking about this, they say, okay, well, show me the evidence. And I, uh, I, unfortunately, I'm like, you know, I work on three different nonprofits and I also have to pay for my life. And like, you know, I'm not an academic. I don't have time to like produce this kind of stuff. But to me, it's, it almost doesn't need that kind of scientific understanding because it really just comes down to very understandable common sense factors. When you reduce the size of a space, the overall energy, the BTUs that are required on a year-to-year -year basis to heat that home also get diminished. Um, and it's not completely linear, as you know, but it's significant enough that it should be incorporated within our codes. It's, a, it's an interesting thought. Um, when, I, when I hear you speak, I, I hear two things. I hear um, pretty similar arguments that uh, the National Home Builders Association and uh, large, you know, builders of larger homes are making with regards to the energy code and and its impact on affordability of, of building and affordability of housing for people uh, and whatnot. Um, and then I also think about 
the size issue that it's proportional and, and relative to the size the energy use is proportional and relative to the size of it so mm -hmm. um you in your when you're in a smaller structure um you're going to be using you'll, you'd still be using more energy if the building envelope wasn't as good uh in in proportion to the size of the unit that is there um if it was insulated better uh, in proportion to the size of the unit that you're use, that you're living in, uh, you'd be using less less energy. So sure, sure. But when I hear that, I, I guess I feel that that argument would essentially be the same that would say, well, we require handrails on decks for safety, right? Mm -hmm. And if you get low enough with your deck, our codes no longer require handrails because people don't want to have to because it to them it doesn't make sense it's not that dangerous but the reality is you can have a deck that's 12 inches off the ground there's still some danger there mm -hmm. so why not just require all decks to have handrails no matter what and the reality is that there comes a point when it just the added effort and the cost and the imposition of that requirement um, of making a handrail is outweighing the safety benefits that you're gonna get from it, right? And essentially, like with when I see with a tiny home, and I, that might not have been the very best comparison, but to me, I feel like when you are pushing, imposing these really stringent energy requirements on a home that is under 250 square feet, which is the majority of tiny homes, uh, what you're doing is essentially the same as requiring a deck that's six inches off the ground to have a 36 inch handrail no matter what, because you're trying to um, make sure that it's safe. And you're not, you're not acknowledging that there is actually an inherent safety to that deck because it's just not that far off the ground. And I think it's the same way with a tiny home, whereas there, you know, you've already achieved the goal of creating an efficient home simply by reducing the size of it that you don't need to then impose overly stringent energy requirements with the justification that you are trying to ensure efficiency because efficiency has already been achieved does that make sense it makes sense but again it's um it's the exact same argument that a builder of a of a 5000 2000 square foot house uh is making uh, with well, no. I think what they're saying is that we need housing, and we're not trying to make things more. We're we're trying to, you know, give people homes that are um, as affordable as we can. And when you're trying to make them energy efficient, now they're not going to be able to afford that 5,000 square foot home. And my argument to that to those people, well, then build it 3,000 square feet. You know, yeah. If if a five thousand square foot home is too expensive at the at, to make it efficient, well then just go in and shave off some cost and make it three thousand square feet. Because the truth of the matter is that, in my belief, our understanding of what is an appropriate size space as Americans has been in this process of expanding and expanding and expanding to the point where. It's pretty easy from a perspective of anywhere else in the world that it's unrealistic 
it's just not realistic to have the entire population of the world of 8 billion thinking that what they need for happiness is a 5,000 square foot home. And, yeah. and there's another factor in terms of this is that by giving some exemptions to small homes, what you're doing is you're actually helping the, the math work in terms of what developers think about when they're actually going to invest into a project. And one of the biggest problems that we have out there in our housing stock in general is this idea of the missing middle and the vanishing of the starter homes, right? And so we just really have not been building, I think it's 89% of the homes that were built since the pandemic were over the average size, right? So we just have not been building the small homes, even though we know that there's this massive need for more affordable. There is also um, an environmental emergency that we should probably pay attention to and building 5,000 square foot homes, no matter how well efficient they are, is a really huge amount of material use. And then we're also dealing with a scenario where over the last five decades, the demographics within our population have been shifting um, continuously towards smaller family size, uh, people are getting married far later in life, uh, and then also divorce rates are are way higher than they've had been before. And what that means is that the number, the percentage of the, our population that are living in, in nuclear families is at an all-time low. It's at 20%. And only 27% of our entire population are living in households with children of any kind. And what you have is you have the biggest demographic in our entire country are single adults living alone. And at the same time that our home size has been expanding, their population, the way that we've been living is completely gone the other direction. And what it's left us is we are living in this housing stock that is all built for the needs of nuclear families. And 73% of us are either single adults or married couples without children. And so we've just completely neglected to build the type of homes that are actually appropriate for the needs, in my opinion. And what that's left us is with um, the biggest the biggest factor here is that now you have an older demographic. You have the baby boomer generation that's sneaking up on retirement and retention rates in people staying in their homes are way higher than they've ever been. And part of the big reason is because, okay, if you're going to sell your home, if you know that you're an empty nester, you don't need this 5,000 square foot home anymore, well, you got to find some place to downsize to. Yeah. And we've eliminated all the options from our society in terms of like desirable ways to downsize. We do allow smaller stuff to be built, but it's typically built as apartment buildings. And as you know, we, we quarantine those apartment buildings into the least desirable parts of town. So if you don't want to move into that part of town, you're going to stay in your home for forever and ever until it's time for a nursing home, right? And so that's, that's kind of where we're at. And so allowing tiny homes and movable tiny homes is all what it would do instantly is it would be an option for millions of older Americans that are currently occupying large homes that they don't necessarily want or need, it would give them an opportunity to buy a tiny home, move into the backyard, and then if their life changed, 
you know, then they can sell the home that they're with. They can take that equity. They already have their tiny home. Now they can move it into a community with other aging people that, you know, is, is, would, is, it's, it's something that would actually functionally work. And it would provide this really needed option for older people to be able to downsize and remain part of their community. Hmm. That's an interesting, I mean, it's an interesting thought. Um, uh, one, I wonder about um, the actual livability of a tiny home for an elderly person, uh, especially sure. an, an aging person um, that might or might not be able to get it, get in and out of the loft sleeping area, which yeah. most, most of them do. But well, People get hung up on the lofts. I'm going to just say this. People think that a tiny home has to have a loft. It's not true yeah, it at all. Doesn't my, yeah. my friends in California that are really selling a lot of tiny homes because these are markets that have actually legalized them, um, the vast majority of the homes that they're selling are, you know, have, have floor plans without sleeping lofts. They might have a storage loft. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, the vast majority of the sales that are actually happening, they're not to millennials. These are the if you had to stereotype the clientele of a movable tiny home in California right now, it would be a woman in their late 50s, early 60s that are single. And that's not the that's not what you think about when you think about tiny homes, but that's the reality is yeah. that's where the demographic is. And, and, and it's because people are searching for options. And yeah. a lot of people are just understand that, you know, I've lived my entire life with this beautiful home and all the stress that came with it. And I want at least part of my life where I'm free from that, like, massive financial burden and I can just enjoy my space and my time. And the solution that they're coming to is a tiny home. And the question that we really need to be asking ourselves is not like, oh, could I live in a tiny house? Could Do I think that I could? The real question is, if this person is looking at this housing type as a dignified, affordable way, that something that works for their lives, why are we imposing laws that prevent them from having that self-determination? Yeah, I think that makes total sense. And it, it goes along with, uh, I think, your strong arg argument about tiny houses being part of the solution for affordable housing. Yeah. Um, and how we get them incorporated into the code so that they're they're buildable and um, attainable and not looked at as an oddity, um, in essence. There. Yeah. Uh, and well, you're I, never gonna you're I, never gonna be able to stop people's prejudices when you say like yeah. them not looked as an oddity. I mean, that's kind of coming from someone's background and their own personal. Well, it's, it's the space. whole idea, um, you know, it's the same issue ultimately that passive house has. It's how do you take something that isn't necessarily mainstream and make it, make it a mainstream option um, there. Yeah. And yeah. Well, I do kind of think that, the tiny house community and the tiny house um, associations and industry associations are going to have to take on uh, some type of research partnership with a group like NREL or uh, the Building mm -hmm. America program or something 
to be able to prove their arguments because that that is the way that especially the energy code uh, is going is that you're you're going to have to have more data as we move forward and they're they're less of the low hanging fruits available uh, to to reduce energy use in housing you know maybe maybe the low hanging fruit is uh, specifically smaller smaller housing uh, but but we need data to 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 take those to take everybody along with the tiny house community to that conclusion sure and and i would say that you're right we do we desperately need some really hard you know hard worked out data that's peer reviewed that is really just comparing energy um uh, efficiency and not just efficiency but like the total energy use over the year per capita right and so we do need that, but at the same time, I do feel like a lot of this is it. I hear that argument a lot, and I do feel that that is kind of ignoring something that is just fundamental truth to efficiency is that reducing the size of a space that you're trying to heat and cool is going to reduce the energy demand. It's just common sense. It's just common sense. Yeah. Given if the R values are consistent, right? You're just going to reduce it. And so the the question then is becomes like, okay, well let's let's not argue about whether or not that's real because that's obvious. But let's argue about okay, well what's equi equivalent? You know, if you have a 2,000 square foot house and you require a certain energy requirement, well what's the equivalent of that? requirement that R value of insulation in a space that's much smaller, you know, and I'm not trying to argue that we don't need any kind of efficiency. I'm happy to have homes that are equivalent, far more efficient, but keeping them equal, demanding the, that a tiny home has the exact same wall structure and insulation value as a full size home is really what you're doing is you're penalizing people of less affluence, right? Yeah. You're you're taking again, this. It's only for a segment of the tiny homes. It's for the tiny homes on wheels because you are. We already came to the conclusion that the tiny homes that are on a foundation, it's not an issue for. Um, no, it it absolutely is. Part of the issue with tiny homes on on foundations, one of the reasons that they're not actually being built, is because. Uh, per square foot, they're far more expensive than a full-size home, right? And so if you were to grant smaller homes of any type, whether they were on wheels or on foundations, an exemption from high energy requirements, what you would do is you would end up having a net gain in efficiency because you would empower more people to actually go through with building smaller spaces. So it don't almost it would create that needed incentive for developers to consider building smaller spaces because their their construction costs would be reduced. So that would go into their equation that they actually create in order to determine whether or not it's an investment that they want to participate in. And so we do need as a society to kind of look at that as well as like, hey, if we we have this missing middle, well, what it's what's it going to take, you know? Do we need to give developers some kind of incentives here to get them to actually build the type of homes that we need? Or are we just going to keep going down this route where we just 
plow out more of the field land around our city and continue this like insane urban sprawl, which we know is like the least efficient way that we can possibly like solve our housing needs. Um, if we really want to do efficiency, what we would do is we would look at policies that would enable people that are currently trapped in large homes or, and, and, you know, people disagree with me when I use that phrase trapped, but that's exactly how people have described it to me. They say, Hey, I'm, I'm living by myself. I'm divorced. My kids are out. I got a three, 3,500 square foot home. I hate it. I don't need it, but there's no place for me to go. And a tiny home would be perfect. And you know, there's enough of them. And the keep, keep in mind, any time that we have that kind of situation happening, if we can allow an opportunity for them to downsize, that is essentially freeing up a full-size home for a family that needs the space. So part yeah. of the problem with efficiency is that we don't have good options that are smaller. And so it's forcing our population to be living in our housing stock in an extremely inefficient way. Well, on that, that note, <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, we've uh, uh, come to the conclusion, at least of our, our time together. And you've brought up some really interesting points that uh, need to be pondered. And uh, it will be interesting to, to follow, continue to follow the tiny house movement and see how it uh, can grow from a niche market to uh, mainstream market. So I really appreciate your time today. Thanks for, for uh, telling us and, and enlightening us more about tiny houses. Well, Robbie, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I am going to take your recommendation seriously about figuring out how our, our organization can not just kind of be talking about these things in kind of a theoretical um, manner and using phrases like common sense and actually be able to point to some, some uh, well-founded actual data and so thank you i appreciate the, the conversation and everything okay. that you're doing in, in colorado great well you take care okay thank you for listening to this episode of buildcast brought to you by build tank inc to see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes visit the buildcast page of our website www.btankinc.com Thank you Ben Sound for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it and you for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify or your favorite platform If you enjoyed our show and are willing please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast which will help others find it more easily Thanks again for listening and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.